Well, years ago in the early 2000s, I was a youth pastor, and one of my favorite trips that we used to do annually was to take the students, some of the students, on a, 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 tr- a backpacking trip to the Collegiate Peaks in Colorado. There are few thrills in life like summiting a mountain over 14,000 feet high and looking down on the clouds and landscape below. But to make the climb to the summit, to get to the peak, it requires everything you possibly could have. Not only do you have to deal with snow, ice, and sleet, you've got scree or boulder fields to get over with howling winds, and then there's hypoxia. For those of you who don't know, hypoxia is acute mountain sickness. Symptoms include dizziness, fatigue, really bad headaches, loss of appetite, nausea, dizziness, rapid pulse, and shortness of breath. About 40% of the people that get beyond 10,000 feet succumb to hypoxia, and the percentage increases in proportion to the altitude. Now, all these things, now including dehydration, uh, sudden thunderstorms, and reduced oxygen work against you to get to the peak. If you've ever done this, even though that high, just getting 50 feet, literally sometimes crawling, will require everything you have. And the only thing that keeps you going is keeping your eyes firmly fixed on the summit, looking to the prize, getting to the peak of that mountain, sometimes veiled by clouds or storms or other smaller peaks, but you know that it's there, and literally step by step you give everything you have, trusting that you will one moment get there. Now, unlike a lot of sports, uh, physical ability doesn't provide you with that much an advantage. Now, obviously, if, you have, if you're strong, you have a good cardio, that benefits you. But just because you're stronger, bigger, taller, faster, isn't really what's going to get you to the top. At the end of the day, it's the man or woman, and actually, we've even seen girls and boys, who literally, with nothing but sheer determination and mental grit, commit that nothing's going to stop them from getting to the peak. It's usually those people that will either succeed or, I was going to say, it's those people that succeed. It's having that perspective, that determination that nothing's going to stop you from getting to the summit. Now, you might ask, well, with all these things you've got going on, lightning storms and dehydration, animals, hypoxia, why in the world would this be a favorite event? For any of you who've ever had that experience, to stand on one of the rooftops of the world and look down to see the majesty of creation spread out before you, you know there isn't a thrill that competes with that. Now, what's true of of summiting a 14er, as they like to call it, is true of any sport or any endeavor in life. What we are willing to endure is proportionate to the value of the prize we receive when we accomplish that. Having that prize, that prize puts into perspective, it puts into perspective and broader context your sacrifice, the discipline that exert you, that's required of you, the challenges you're going to go through, and in some cases, the pain you endure because of that prize. Now, this morning in our passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul is saying something very similar, and it's the climax of of an argument he's been making, of a passion he's been proclaiming, really back since verse 7, and he climaxes here in verse 14. He says, he wants to know Christ and be known by Christ, and Paul calls it the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. It is the prize that every individual in this room should strive for. 
And much like peaking a mountain, it is much more a matter of perspective than anything else. So the question we have to ask as we're reading these five verses is, what is that perspective and how do we get it? And Paul answers that very beautifully. Having that perspective is about knowing your purpose in life. It's about following the right practices of life and having the right priorities in life. So we'll look at them one at a time. The first is having the right purpose in life. And Paul makes his case really in verse 12 and verse 15 and a little bit in verse 13. Now, keep in mind that this passage comes on the heels of a section in Philippians, verses 4 through 11 that we looked at last week, where Paul says that everything he once cherished and placed value in this world, he now sees as worthless and valueless in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that once you become a Christian that nothing in this world has any value to you. The key phrase is, in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, everything else is valueless relative to that. As a matter of fact, I bet you Paul, if he could unpack this even more, he would tell us, until you understand the surpassing value of Christ, it's only then can you understand the relative value of everything else in the world and relate to it correctly. That's really important. Until you see the supreme value of Christ, you can't value the things of this world the way we should. You see, the Bible teaches that we are all value, uh, value makers, value assigners. That, that, that's what human beings do, that we assign values to things, and the values we assign to those things in turn determine the way we live our lives, the decisions we make, the priorities we pursue. And that's why it's very important that we value the right things. So, for example, I've got a dollar bill here. What's the value of this dollar bill? Pretty obvious, a dollar, right? If you were, if you were an economist, you'd probably say 25 cents. But we all know that this, do, this dollar bill is valued at a dollar. You might get excited if I gave you this dollar bill, but you'd be like, well, it's a dollar. But I bet you you'd get more excited if I gave you this $20 bill. Why? Well, it's obvious because this one's valued at $20. It's worth more. But why is that? Because the paper is identical to the dollar bill. Andrew Jackson is not more handsome than George Washington, so why is this valued more than this? It's the same amount of print we put on it, same amount of ink we put on it, same size paper. In other words, the value isn't inherent in the sheets of paper. The value is there is because as we as a society have assigned one value to this and another value to that. You might be thinking, that's not really shows that we're value assigners. It's a simple matter of economics and dollars and dollar bills and $20 bills value change depending on economic standards. All right, well, let me give you a couple more examples to show that we are constantly putting, on, putting values on things. Coke or Pepsi? Angels fan, Dodgers fan. Night Owl or Early Bird? Republican, Democrat. Star Wars, Star Trek. Gandalf, Dumbledore. We go on and on and on. Now you laugh because there's, you, sir, you favor one or two of those things. And you say, well, that doesn't 
out because there's reasons I like Coke more than I like Pepsi. There's a reason I prefer uh, football over soccer, but that's the point I'm getting at. We reason through issues and assign a value based upon those reasons. That's what human beings do. That's how God designed us to navigate through the world around us. But the Bible says there's a fundamental problem that we have, and that problem is that we often place the wrong value on the wrong things, and as a result, our lives get all out of whack. Now, if we go around this room, we'd all have great illustrations that, typify, that exemplify this, and one for me classically is being at my kid's sports game. So I was at my, my daughter's volleyball game yesterday. Thankfully, this didn't happen yesterday, but we've seen it happen. You see a father lose his mind because the ref made a call that they didn't agree with and it was unfair to their daughter or son. We've seen this where a parent, if you're a teacher especially, may get upset at you because you gave the wrong grade to their child because you didn't put the value, they, don't, they value their child's work more than you obviously did. See, the Bible has a word for this practice of misplaced values. You know what that word is? Idolatry. Now, now, let me explain what I mean by that. When we place a value on something, we are in, in ascribing a worth to that thing. Does that make sense? When we place a value on something, we are ascribing worth to that. What do you call it when you ascribe worth to something? For those of you who used to like, like English literature, you know the old English word was called worthship. We've gotten rid of that kind of mouthy word and replace it with worship. Whenever we assign values to things, that is an act of worship. It's inherent in our language. And here's the reality. Every one of us has an absolute object of worth that we use to determine the relative worth of everything else in our lives. And for some of us, it's very conscious and deliberate, but for most of us, it's not. And so that ultimate object can be, should be the Lord, but oftentimes it's something more like my kids or my family, my career, my reputation, my comforts, my entertainments. And whatever we put our values to will dictate the way we live our lives. We will order our lives around the things we've ascribed value and worth to, which is worship. This is exactly why Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things, all the things that the people listening were worried about. How are we going to get these things? Jesus says He knows that the human tendency is to pursue all those things, but not the most important thing, and the thing that will never lose value. And Jesus knows that all these other things that we do need will one day, inevitably, all of them, whatever it is, will lose its value to you. No matter how deeply cherished you might hold it now, at one point, its value will, will no longer be there. And so Jesus is saying, and Paul is confirming in Philippians 3, that the purpose of life is to understand what is of most value because that determines everything else about your life. Once you understand that Christ is the surpassing value, you then see everything else in its proper perspective. So, 
when my daughter or my son gets an unfair call by a ref, I don't lose my mind. By the way, I wasn't the guy in the story, right? But just saying, I don't lose my mind because I worship Jesus. You see, it's good that my kid get a fair shake, but it's not the ultimate good. And when I make it the ultimate good and it's taken from me, I lose my mind. But I don't do that anymore because the ultimate good is Christ himself and Christ's honor, not my honor, not my kid's honor. So I don't get upset. I don't lose my mind. Or if my kid comes home with a C, I don't get upset at that because it's not an A because then he's not going to be valedictorian. Because at the end of the day, you see, our values also show where our, our, our affections are, our security. Because my hope is not my son or daughter being valedictorian because that will provide. Because the Bible says God will provide. But in misplacing my values, I've also misplaced my gods and think God can't provide as much as an education can provide. And that's why I lose it when my kids come home with bad grades. You see, when we have Christ as the supreme value, everything else has the right perspective. And so what Paul is arguing here through Philippians and on the heels of talking about humility and unity within the church is have Christ as a supreme value. And then in verse 15, he says it this way. Look at verse 15. He says, all of you who are mature, that's the Greek word telos, complete, let those of you who are mature think this way. So this isn't just Pastor Rick's opinion here. Paul is saying, those of you who are complete in Christ, think this way. Now, what, what's the this he's referring to? It could be everything he was talking about, starting from verse 7 all the way up to this point. But most immediately, I also think it's talking about what he just said in verses 13 and 14, which we haven't gotten to yet, right? Don't worry about it. Because I also want to point out, look at verse 12. Even Paul, Paul the apostle, was still in a process of sanctification to seeing Christ as a supreme value. Look at what he says as he opens our passage. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul had a realistic understanding that even he himself did not know Christ the way he wanted to know Christ. But he also understood this radical truth. Look at the end of verse 12. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul says, look, I, I want to know Christ and I'm pressing into that because I'm not there yet, but I'm doing this because Jesus already did this with me. I want to make Christ my own because he's made me his own. And friends, that order is important. Paul realizes the price that God has paid to secure him, to redeem him, to adopt him. Paul realizes what Christ has done on his behalf, and that fuels his passion and love to know Christ in return. Now, if you're a Christian, you've got to understand that's got to be the foundation of your passion for, for the things of God. It cannot be, this is just the way Christians do things, so you should do it too, because what that will inevitably lead to is either like a moralism or a legalism and, and anger. Why aren't you doing the way you think you're supposed to be doing it? But Paul is fueled because he's blown away by what God has done on his behalf. It's fueled, his love for Jesus is fueled by the recognition of Jesus' love for him. He says, I haven't attained it, but I'm making it my complete goal because he's already made me his own. Friends, are you seeped in the gospel message such that you can say that I want to make Christ my own at any cost because what he's done for me? That it's not about my calendar, my family, my career, my convenience, myself. It's about Christ because Christ made me his all. 
That's what we just learned from chapter 2. And Paul says, this is why I'm pursuing it. So Paul says here, look, the, the right, having the right purpose in life is understanding the supreme value of Christ above all. And then in verses 13 and 14, Paul's going to share his practice to accomplish this purpose in his life. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, so here's the one thing I do. Now, when Paul says, here's the one thing I do, you should get a pen and underline that because some good stuff is coming. Paul, okay, what's the one thing? He actually says it in verse 14, I press on, and kind of this kind of wordy sentence here, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's how we look at these two verses. Verse 14 is the principal statement of the one thing Paul does, but those participle clauses in 13 tell you how he does it. Okay, so verse 14, here's what I do. In verse 13, he tells you how he does the one thing. Another way, in other words, the way Paul presses towards the goal, verse 14, is to forget what is behind and focus on what is ahead, verse 13. And being the sports fan that Paul is, all this is wrapped in the imagery of athletics, so he says, I press on. This is a, a Greek word that shows that I, I run in haste towards an objective, laser focus. Well, he wouldn't have said laser focus, but you know what I mean, like an athlete running to the finish line. He uses words like goal and prize. Even the imagery of not looking back and looking forward, the word picture is as a runner leaning forward, hands stretched out to get across the finish line first. Everything about this is an intensity to get across the finish line, knowing he's in competition, not again against one another as Christians, but against the world, against his flesh, against the enemy of his soul. He is focused on the finish line. And he says, the way you do this, you forget what's behind, focus on one ahead, what's ahead. So he says, when I forget what's behind, let's look at that. Paul is saying, I forget what's behind, not just the bad, Right, the things he has done when he was Saul the Pharisee, and we know he's done some horrible things as Saul the Pharisee. Read the book of Acts. Christians were murdered at his feet while he gave consent. He watched all the guys' clothes that were throwing rocks at these Christians. Right? He says, I don't look back on those things, nor does he look back on the good things he's done as Paul the Apostle of Christ. The point is, he doesn't want to get distracted, neither by the bad or the good in his life, from the goal ahead of him. You ever seen in, in a, athletics or like Olympians or uh, marathons, some runner is way out ahead and they think they're fine and they start to ease up on the speed and then they start looking behind and all the while somebody just overtakes them. That's the imagery here. Paul's saying, I am not going to let that happen. And the present tense of the verb here about, uh, about forgetting is, is important because it's ongoing. It's continuous. He's constantly remembering to forget, if I could put it that way. And this is really key, friends, because we can be tempted to do the same things. If Paul looks back on all that he's done that was wrong uh, before he came to Christ, maybe even while he was a believer, if he looks back on all the things that he's done that was wrong, the focus will no longer be God's grace, but it'll be his, his sin and his guilt. And he'll be tempted to give up because he'll realize he'll never achieve Christ. He's got a track record that proves that. If Paul looks back on his life, on all the things he's done that was right, the focus won't be on God's grace. 
but it's going to be on his accomplishments and his pride, and he'll be tempted to stop running because, after all, he's already achieved Christ. Either way, if Paul looks back, they'll either be feeling condemned or conceited. Either way, he's not going to value Christ the way he should. So, Paul says, look, I forget what is behind. Friends, the same applies to us. If you look back, don't rehash the sins of your life. If you are in Christ, don't look back and rehash those sins and your shortcomings and feel like, I can't ever achieve Christ, so why bother? The gospel message says we are forgiven in Christ of everything you've ever done. Uh, and I just think of that, that when Jesus says, when the, when the prostitute came and was weeping at his feet and his disciples rebuked him, and Jesus says, well, you guys totally don't get it. To whom much is forgiven, right, much is appreciated. Whoever is forgiven much, loves much. All our sins in Christ have been forgiven, friends. Do not let your flesh or the enemy tell you otherwise. So don't look back re rehashing your sins but we also don't look back. We also, when we look back, want to forget the good as well. I mean, after all, it was God's grace working in your life, wasn't it? It wasn't you doing those things. It was God's grace. Friends, just like there's no rehashing your sins before the Lord, there's no retiring your service from the Lord. Let me say that again. What Paul's getting is when he says, I forget what's behind. You can't rehash your sins before the Lord, and you can't retire your service from the Lord. Right? And as a pastor, I, I see people torpedo their faith this one of these one of two ways all the time. They're either looking back and saying, man, all the stuff I've done in the back, I can't believe God would forgive me, or this stuff, is, I'm just never overcoming this stuff. I still, from 10 years ago, last year, last week, I'm struggling with the same stuff. And they get discouraged and want to give up. Or they look back and feel like, man, I've been serving the Lord pretty good. I've been teaching Sunday school for 10 years. I can kick back now. Let other people kind of take over. I've done my time, right? Like serving Jesus as a prison sentence or something. Like, I put in my time. I'm done. Friends, Paul is saying you can't do that. You can't rehash your sins. You can't retire your service. Don't look back on the things you've done. That's an easy way to be overtaken. You know, this morning at our elder prayer meeting, I was looking through our membership list. We pray for, for our people. And I realized as I'm looking at this list, there's this couple, and they're a faithful couple. They've been here at this church serving since I was two. <laughs> Puts that things into perspective. And I remember praying. I said, Lord, if, if, if anyone could be tempted to feel like they've put in their time, it's this couple. And so this morning I prayed, Lord, don't let this couple look back on the good they've done and feel like they're going to retire their service. You gave them 40 years here. God, give them 40 more. It'll be like 120 or so, but you get the point. Paul says, you want to have the right purpose in life to see Christ as surpassing value? Forget what's behind you. Whether it's the good or the bad, because either it'll discourage you or derail you one way or the other, you can be overtaken. Forget what's behind. Here's the key. Focus on what lies ahead. That's we see that in verse 13. Forget what's behind. It's an ongoing active activity. Focus on what's ahead, straining ahead. Let me use a phrase that Paul uh, uses to help you think through this. What one change could you make in your life in order to pursue the one thing that matters most in life? What one change could you employ in your life in order to pursue the one thing that matters most 
in life. In the language of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, uh, what's the one thing, what's the one sin, that's what, how Hebrews talks about it. Actually, I think Hebrews expands that. Whether it's sin, a habit, or practice, good, bad, or otherwise, what one thing can you throw aside so you can run the race more freely, more easily? What's one thing you can do that you haven't been doing? Friends, don't underestimate the power of what one simple change can do in your life. And I think a lot of people think change in our lives, they think of our lives like a TV dinner. Right, so I got, I got my work life here, and it's nice squared off in its little container. I got my spiritual life here. I got my romantic life here. I got my financial life here. And it's all compartmentalized and all separated from each other, right? So when you talk about life change, they're like, oh, man, I got to change this. I gotta, so I got to change all these things because they're all compartmentalized and separated like a TV dinner. Friends, think of your lives more like a, a good bowl of ramen, right, where it's all just mushed together. And just one ingredient into the broth changes everything. Now, one ingredient, some ingredients strong, more stronger than the others, but you get the point. It's not all parsed off, fragmented, compartmentalized. Our lives are like a bowl of ramen more than a TV dinner. And one little drop of, of fish broth, or, 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 or yeah, that might be a little bit gross for somebody, but like shoyu will go through the whole broth and change the flavor. What one change can you do in your life that might permeate through your whole life? Let me just prime the pump by just giving you two options, two things to think about. Probably the most obvious things that reveal the one thing of our lives, our purpose in life, is going to be our time, our money. How are you using the time God's given you? How are you making the most of our days? Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15, and 16, redeeming the time. I love that language. I think it's New King James Version. I love that, right? Because we live in a culture that's in like managing time. The Bible doesn't talk about managing your time. The Bible talks about redeeming your time because the days are evil. Thinking of retiring from our service of the Lord, read John chapter 9 when Jesus says, look, the, the day is at hand where we can work. The night is coming where no one can work. We don't have much time. How are you stewarding the 24 hours that God gives you, right? Are, are you spending inordinate amounts of time on mindless activities and, and, and selfish pursuits? Are you binge watching again another TV show? I saw my Facebook uh, feed, somebody saying, asking for uh, recommendations, and this is how she put it, I'm looking for a new addiction to watch on Netflix. Any recommendations? Like, that's a good thing. Oh, yeah, I, I just wanted to go into 300 hours of slavery, and I'm going to watch 24, or whatever show it is, right? And I'm using that because that's the show I'd love to watch, but it's 300 hours of my life. I'm not going to do that. Are you working excessive amounts of hours at the office? Are you having time to cultivate relationships with your neighbors in your community that you might share the gospel with them? Are you saving time just to have unhurried and unbothered prayer? How are you using time? Are you just managing it or are you redeeming it? What about our money? We all should recognize that our finances are not our own. That's why we take an offering every Sunday is to, to get that death grip off the wallet, right? Week by week reminding us this is not mine, it's the Lord's. 
If you're a member here, if you regularly attend here, are you financially contributing to this church? Are you contributing to any church? Are you knowing the joy of supporting a missionary? Are you getting in on the action of what God is doing? Or are you just kind of hoarding it all? Right? Remember we talked about James. That hoarded pile will stand in judgment against you. How are you using your money? Are you recognizing this is God's? How are you stewarding it? A third one related really to what Paul is talking about, uh, knowledge. I mean, after all, Paul is talking about knowing Christ, and you cannot know without learning more. How are you growing in your knowledge of who Christ is? Is it growing? Maybe you can, on your commute to work, listen to a podcast, listen to a sermon series, get a good audio book that helps you think biblically about the world around you. Maybe your morning workout, you can listen to some wonderful music that's out there like a beautiful eulogy or Shailen or Shane and Shane, some artist that weaves into their music rich theology to feed your souls. Maybe you can memorize a hymn and sing those. It's the great thing about hymns. Hymns don't need electric guitar and drums and piano. You can just sing it because it was written for the voice. What about partnering with somebody to memorize Scripture together? What about buying a book from our book spot there and so that you can think more like Christ and learn more about His glory and His purposes in the world? How are you expanding the knowledge that you have to know Him? Right, friends, I, I love um, 2 Timothy 4.13. It, it's, it's Paul's last book. He's about to face the guilt. His head's about to come off. He knows it's, this is it, curtain call time. And he writes to Timothy, and you know what he asks Timothy for? Books. What in the world? You're about to die, Paul. And he wants books. One of the most brilliant minds, a theologian, a pastor, a philosopher, an evangelist. But he wants books because he wants to know Christ and be known by him. And he realizes, I'm not there. I haven't obtained it yet. Bring me the books. I got a week left. <laughs> Bring me the books and the parchments. And he does ask for a cloak, so it's practical too. But I love Paul's passion to know Christ. Do you share that passion? And does it show in your life? Paul says, it's one thing I do. It's one thing, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So we ask, so, so what's the prize? With that, he's got his laser focus, what's the prize? And in, 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 in keeping with the athletic imagery in these Panhellenic games like the Olympians, uh, Olympics, whenever an athlete was the victor, uh, they would be recognized and oftentimes the overseers of the event, and in Rome, sometimes the emperor himself, Caesar himself, would be the one to put the honor on the winning athlete. And so the prize was to be known by sometimes Caesar himself or these high-ranking officials to have that kind of status and acknowledgement brought honor to one and their family. And so they would do this to be recognized and have the status and honor bestowed by another man. So if another man brought such honor, what honor does it bring us to know that Christ himself knows you and is known by you? Think about that. I don't know if you know any celebrities, but a lot of people like to know influential, popular people. Why? Because it kind of adds them status. And Paul's saying, here's the prize, to be known by the king of eternity himself. That's the prize. Having the right purpose in life and having the right practices in life 
will only keep you going so long, but you need to maintain the right priorities in life as well. So Paul concludes our time, our our passage this morning. Verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So the question we have is, Paul, how do we hold true? And he uses an interesting word, stoikain, which which literally means to keep in line or keep in step. In, In some ancient Greek manuscripts, it talks about the way armies march. It just means real, just regimented discipline. They're walking lockstep together in Acts 21, 24. It's used um, about living closely in regulation to the law. In Galatians 5, 25, the same word is used to refer to living one's life in conformity to the Spirit of God. In Romans 4, 12, it's used about being consistent in a lifestyle of faith. So what we do is we build theologies. We look at how does the Scripture use this word, and then we, we analyze and synthesize this idea as a faithful, Spirit-filled obedience to the Word of God. That's how we hold true to what we've already attained. Now, I don't have time to get into it too exhaustively, but let me just give you four brief resources of what God has given us to help our priorities, keep our priorities right. Some of these are pretty obvious. Number one is God's Word itself. Look at 1 Peter 2.2. Peter writes, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. Now, the Word of God is not mentioned in that verse, but you just read a couple of verses around what Peter's saying. It's clear he's talking about the Word, the imperishable Word of God. Now, younger, uh, younger parents have the benefit of this metaphor working well, but if you can remember, if not, go serve in our nursery, what a newborn infant is like when it comes to mother's milk, amen? You don't have to cajole them, but please, would you just drink some of this, right? Oh, c- come on, you really do need this. It is a natural instinct to grab and want Friends, are you the kind of Christian that other people have to cajole? Come on, get into the Word. You, you need the Word. Memorize some Scripture. Come on, let's go to church. You, sh- you should be doing this. Is that you? If that is a lifestyle that's resonant with how you are, I would not take much confidence in your profession of faith because Scripture is saying like a newborn infant, Christians are going to crave spiritual milk. It's the Word of God. So that's the first resource, God's Word. Second one is prayer. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Why? For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then I love this comparison. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Notice the argument from lesser to greater. If you then who are evil... You know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Now, let's, you, let's, let's see this uh, petition in context. This does not mean now you can ask for the new Lexus and you get it, right? This does not mean now you can ask for, for the better job and get it or whatever it might be. Let's put it in context. What Jesus is talking about is the good things like desiring the right things in your life. Friends, I don't know about you, but one of the hardest things about my Christian faith is wanting the right things in my Christian life. I continually have the propensity to want the wrong things. But by God's grace, that's one thing I realize. Like the man in Mark chapter 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want the right things, but help me because so often I don't. Friends, if you are here and you're like, I I don't have a thirst for the Word of God. these, 
this is, what pra- this is what the prayer is about. The Lord will give you good things. If you say, Lord, give me conviction of sin and a desire for holiness, He's going to answer that. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more is your heavenly Father going to give you good things? Right? So the Word of God, prayer. Third, I don't have a scripture for this because this is all we're going to talk about next week a lot is godly examples. Again, the importance of being in a local church, friends. How many times have you been discipled because you're sitting in a room and watching the lives of other people? How many times have you learned to be a father if you're a father watching another man handle their, their crying child? How many times, women, have you learned to love your husbands by watching another woman love her husband? Godly examples cannot be discounted. This is why being in a local church is so important, right? Fourth and finally, this is probably a resource we wouldn't naturally want for ourselves, but it's clear in the Scriptures, suffering and trials. 1 Peter 5.10 writes, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Remember our study of James, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why should we do that, James? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, teleos, mature, and lacking in nothing. If you're a note taker, write down Romans 5, 3, and 4. I didn't put that on the screen, but Paul is saying kind of the the same kind of thing. So maintaining these priorities is what will help us maintain the practice in our life of not looking back or forget, not looking back, but focusing on what's ahead, which will help us understand the purpose of life, which is the surpassing value of Christ, which helps us see everything in its right perspective. Uh, Seeing the world from the top of Mount Yale, which just for a sense of perspective is is over three miles above sea level, Seeing the world from the top of Mount Yale is, was an amazing experience. But seeing the world from a biblical perspective is not just an amazing experience, it's a life-transforming, life-giving experience. But sometimes it requires from us, doesn't it? Sheer mental grit and determination. But we don't do it just because of that. We do it because we recognize Christ has already made us His own. And Christ will sustain and supply what we need to get us to that peak. I pray that that's true of us as well. Father, we thank you for Paul, who he is an example, and he says so in verse 17. Father, we thank you for the resources of your word, of prayer. Father, we even thank you for the sufferings and trials we endure. No doubt that this Rwandan man that Kyle read to us his poem the night before his martyrdom inspired the church in Rwanda. Father, he is one of many that we pray that we can find ourselves worthy to be in his fellowship, the fellowship of the unashamed. Father, as we celebrate communion together, may it be true that it is the life and death of Christ that we feed upon that that sustains us and strengthens us. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.